Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 76, Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo, Part 3. Before we get back to Justin Martyr, first, a couple of items about this podcast. A couple of days ago, a listener named John emailed me and asked in part, when is the next interview? This used to be pretty regular and was highly engaging. John, I agree. In fact, I've been pursuing a number of interviews of fascinating people with fascinating things to say people who agree with me in various ways, and of course, people who disagree with me in lots of ways. I agree that the interviews are engaging. I just happen to get on kind of a patristic and biblical kick here. Next week will, in fact, be an interview with someone who is a new contributor to the Trinity's blog, someone who will be doing blog posts every so often. So you'll get to meet this person, and there are more coming. As of right now, I'm thinking about doing one episode of original content for about two two-part interviews. So that's what I'm currently thinking. We'll see how that works out, and we'll see how Trinity's listeners like that mix of content. I suspect that many of them, like you, prefer the interview episodes to the original content episodes. So we'll see if we can find a good mix. Thanks, John, for the feedback. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes Store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org blog review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Thanks for listening and for helping us to get the word out that God wants us to love Him, in part, by thinking hard about Him. After all, it was Jesus who said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and with all your strength. When we come back, what Justin Martyr says about worshipping Jesus.
In episode 75, we explored the Christology of Justin Martyr, and we discovered that for Justin, Jesus is not divine in the way that the one true God is divine. Jesus hasn't always existed, and he isn't the one true God or one of the three persons within the one true God. Of course, he calls Jesus God, and he says that Jesus is the, quote, God who is experienced in the Old Testament. Someone might say, what about early high Christology? Hasn't that been shown? Hasn't recent scholarship shown that very early on there was a very high Christology? Well, what do you mean by high? If high Christology requires the things that were required at Nicaea and Constantinople, then Justin's Christology is going to fall short of being high. But when some people talk about, quote, high Christology, I think the main thing they mean is that Jesus was worshipped. So doesn't Justin believe that Jesus should be worshipped? And doesn't this show that Justin thinks that Jesus is God himself, or that Jesus is divine in the same way that the Father is divine? Well, let's hear what Justin says about worshipping Jesus. This is from the 13th chapter of his first apology, his first public letter to the Roman emperor on behalf of Christians. He's answering what was, in his day, a popular accusation against Christians. We are not atheists, since we worship the maker of this universe, whom we praise to the utmost of our power through the word of prayer and thanksgiving for all things that we receive. Our teacher of these things is Jesus Christ. We worship him rationally, having learned that he is the son of the true God himself, and holding him in the second place and the prophetic spirit in the third rank. And in chapter 6 of his first apology, he explains to the emperor that We are called atheists, and we confess that we are atheists when it comes to gods such as yours, but not with reference to the most true God, the Father of righteousness. We worship and adore both him and the Son who came from him, and taught us these things, and the army of the other good angels, who follow him and are made like him, and the prophetic spirit giving honor in reason and truth. So he's arguing that Christians aren't atheists, they're not godless. Look, we worship the one true God, but also this special son of God, and the host of other messengers of God who aren't as great as the son. Oh yeah, and also the prophetic spirit. So we honor lots of divinities, and we're not at all atheists, except with respect to the pagan deities. Notice a couple of things about what he said. First, he leads with the fact that Christians worship the Father. The Father is the one true God of monotheism for him, and that's what Justin emphasizes. But that's not all Christians worship or honor. They also worship the Son, and he says the prophetic spirit and the other angels, the other messengers of God in addition to Jesus. And he says that Christians worship the Son and the Spirit in the second and third rank. So his idea is that Christians give the kind of honor that's due to all the deities that there are, to all the divine beings that there are. And then the highest honor is given to the Father, that's the one highest God. But also, in the second and third place, they worship others. And presumably the angels are in the third or lower rank of Christian esteem. Now there are a couple of really puzzling features of this second passage, again from chapter 6. One is, why does he mention at all that Christians worship the army of the other good angels? Is he talking about some kind of corporate worship of angels? Is that something that existed in the second century? 
And why does he bring up the angels before bringing up the prophetic spirit? I'm not entirely sure what's going on here, but the best spin I could put on it is that he's rebutting the charge of atheism, so he wants to maximize the number of divine beings that Christians honor. Yeah, sure, Christians reject the entire pantheon of Rome, and also Greece and Egypt and so on. But hey, we've got lots of deities we honor the divine rather fully. We, of course, worship God, but also the Son of God, the prophetic spirit, and the other angels. I mean, maybe he's just kind of thrown in the angels there as a way to maximize how many divine beings Christians honor. Maybe there isn't any corporate practice of worship that he's referring to there. In the case of the prophetic spirit and the angels, maybe all he means by honoring is that Christians publicly teach the truths about them. In that sense, they honor them verbally, uh, but not so much in making them an object of religious worship. At least I think you can take him that way. In any case, to go back to the issue of worship and high Christology, the important point is that for Justin, being worthy of worship doesn't imply being God himself or even being a divine person within a tripersonal God. Justin never mentions or in any way implies a tripersonal God. For him, the one true God is the Father. When we come back, where, according to Justin, can we find Jesus at work in Old Testament times? God, through Moses, revealed to us that at the creation of man, God spoke to him. Let us make man in our image and likeness. He spoke with one endowed with reason and numerically different from himself. Here in chapter 62, he mentions three wrong interpretations of let us make man in our image and likeness. His question is, who is God talking to? One answer would be he's just talking to himself. Imagine that you're sitting around on a lazy Saturday afternoon and you say to yourself, let's make some chocolate chip cookies. Who are you talking to? Well, to yourself. Just like, let's go outside now. Let's lay down and have a nap. Sometimes people talk like that in the manner that they might talk to other people if other people had been present. Another option, which doesn't get really seriously discussed, is that God is talking to the elements that is, the material elements out of which God made things or out of which God arranged the cosmos. That doesn't seem too promising. Another option would be that God is talking to angels or to his heavenly court. And Justin doesn't really take that very seriously. He doesn't really bother arguing against it. But I think that's where a lot of present-day interpreters come down. What's his big argument? That God was speaking to someone, and moreover, that this was someone else? It's the words of Genesis 3.22, where God says, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. But of course, that wouldn't decide between the father and son interpretation, which Justin holds, and the God and the angels interpretation, 
if indeed the angels too know good and evil. I read an interesting article by a scholar named Menahem Kister from the Hebrew University. It's called, Some Early Jewish and Christian Exegetical Problems and the Dynamics of Monotheism. And he discusses at great length different Jewish interpretations and a few early Christian interpretations of this passage. One thing some of them didn't like about the angels' interpretation is if God's saying, let us make to them, you might think that implies that the angels helped. And Philo and Gnostic Christianity, he says, divide the creation of man between the angels and God. Like the angels did some of it and God did other bits of it. And so many of them would shy away from that interpretation that God was speaking to the angels. Of course, I'm not even sure it really follows. Imagine you're hanging around with your family around Christmas time and your mom says, I know what let's do, let's make a pie. And then your mom proceeds to make the whole pie all by herself and you just sit around and watch. Another thing that worried many Jewish interpreters was the idea that God would have to be consulting with the angels. Of course, this needn't be any consultation. It could just be a remark about what God is about to do. But most interestingly, Kister considers some Jewish interpretations from the 2nd and 3rd centuries on that God was speaking to, quote, his heart or to his own wisdom. And they seem to be thinking that this is kind of like a part of him. It's almost like it's another agent who is within God. And this is, on the face of it anyway, similar to what a lot of Trinitarians think. It's like one part of God addressing the other. Kister says, quote, The opinion that, quote, he consulted with his heart, end quote, is precisely parallel to Justin's Christian interpretation that God said, quote, let us make man, end quote, to his wisdom, identified in Christian exegetical tradition with the Son, or with the Son and the Holy Spirit, end quote. One of the main thrusts of Kister's piece is that Justin is following up on some interpretive strategies that had already been developed by Hellenized Jews of previous generations. Is he a Platonizer? Yes, he is, but a lot of it's not direct. A lot of it is just reproducing the interpretive strategies of earlier Jewish Platonists. There's a lot of recent literature that kind of points in this direction. When we return, Justin's argument that Genesis chapters 18 and 19 reveal two who are called Lord. As we heard in the last episode, Justin thinks it obviously impossible for a human to see God. In part, this is because he thinks God can't move from his heavenly abode. And also, he thinks that God, the Creator, is just too glorious to be seen by a human. 
When God says, God went up from Abraham, or the Lord went down to see the tower, you should not imagine that the unbegotten God himself went down or went up from any place. For the ineffable Father and Lord of all neither comes to any place, nor walks, nor sleeps, nor arises, but always remains in his place, wherever it may be. Nor is he moved, who cannot be contained in any place, not even in the whole universe, for he existed even before the universe was created. How then could he converse with anyone, or be seen by anyone, or appear in the smallest place of the world? When the priest could not remain standing before the shrine when Solomon brought the ark into the building he had erected for it in Jerusalem. Justin thinks, then, that in light of this truth, the incidents related in Genesis 18 and 19 are revealing, that is, revealing of two lords, of two who are called Lord. Now, for lack of time, we're not going to go through this whole passage, but basically, God visits Abraham and Sarah. He seems to be accompanied by two angels. But then God says he's going to go down in person and check out Sodom. And then, oddly, Yahweh stays with Abraham, but the two men accompanying him go down. So, seemingly, those are angels, and God is acting through them, and they go down to Sodom. In chapter 19, they're called two angels, and they come to Sodom, and it turns out that God's judgment is going to come upon this city. Here's the passage that so excited Justin, followed by his comment on it. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and on Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of the sky. When the prophetic word says the Lord rained down fire from the Lord out of heaven, it indicates that there are two in number, one on earth and one in heaven. Who is the Lord of the Lord on earth, and as his Father and God was responsible for his being the Mighty One and Lord and God? Sometimes you'll find Christian apologists who still make this argument. For instance, it came up in the debate which we covered in episodes 17 through 21 of the Trinity's podcast. But if you look in the notes of your study Bible, you're probably not going to find the commenters there pushing this interpretation. And the reason is that this is a very lame argument, and it's easily answered. Leading historian of Judaism, Peter Schaefer, in his book, The Jewish Jesus, quotes a third century source, which says in part this, quote, a heretic once said, the Lord, Yahweh, caused to rain upon Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord, Yahweh, Genesis 19.24, but from him should have been written. In other words, the Jews are wrong that there's one Lord, there are two who are called Lord. If there was only one Lord, it would have just said, from him. Here's the answer that the Jewish scholar gives. He quotes Genesis 4.23, quote, It is written, quote, And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, end quote. But he should have said, My wives. Yet such is the scriptural idiom. So here, too, it is the scriptural idiom. End quote. His point is just that in the style of Hebrew in which Genesis is written, sometimes there is a gratuitous extra reference to a person. So Lamech addresses his wives as you wives of Lamech. And normally we don't do that. We would just say my wives. To us, this is bad style. It's bad style in English, I mean. Imagine that you're telling a story about a tough hillbilly named Jethro who gets into a bar fight and he beats up a whole room full of people and you say, 
and Jethro gave them a good beatdown from Jethro. Now, in English, that's bad style. You could say he gave him a beatdown with his own two fists. He gave him a beatdown all by himself. He gave him a beatdown alone. But you wouldn't say that Jethro gave those guys a beatdown from Jethro. But you can do that in some languages. There's no reason to take this to be a secret code that really there are two called Yahweh. Granted, the case is a little more complicated because God is supposed to be acting through the angels here. But yeah, it's just not a compelling argument. When the Trinity's podcast continues, where is Justin getting these strange ideas that God can't create directly, that it's impossible for the omnipotent God to manifest to any human and sensory perception, that God is utterly changeless in every way, that God can't have made humans like himself, but must have made us like some other being who has somehow emanated out of God before creation? answer to all those questions I posed right before the break, I think, is Hellenistic Judaism. That is, Jewish theology which had been strongly influenced by Greek culture and philosophy. And specifically, the Jewish Bible interpreter Philo, who lived in Alexandria in Egypt and flourished around the time of Christ. Now, Philo is a deep well. We have extant many, many works from Philo. They comprise a thick book, and his style is really out there. It's really speculative and imaginative. We don't have time to fully delve into Philo, but I'm going to read you a kind of summary, which I think is pretty good, which again is from Alvin Lamson's book, The Church of the First Three Centuries. Lamson says, quote, The great points of resemblance between the views of the Platonists and those of the Christian fathers, and of Justin in particular on the subject of the Logos, Son, or Second God, may be stated in a few words. Plato had spoken of God and his reason or logos embracing the patterns or archetypes of things afterwards formed. The latter, sometimes called the intellect of God, he pronounces the divinest of things and admits it into the number of his primary principles, his ultimate sources, in other words. Whether he regarded it as having a real and proper subsistence or as only an attribute represented as a person by a sort of poetical fiction, it is of no consequence to determine. It is acknowledged that he sometimes speaks of it in terms that, literally understood, which, however, they probably were never intended to be, would lead to the supposition that he considered it a real being, distinct from the supreme God, or united with him only as proceeding from the fountain of his divinity. Certain it is that it was so explained by his later followers of the Egyptian school, especially after they had become acquainted with the Oriental doctrine of emanations. Of the opinions of this school, Philo, a learned Jew of Alexandria, who flourished soon after the Christian era, and who has been called the Jewish Plato, from the striking resemblance of his opinion to those of the Athenian sage, may be regarded as a fair representative, 
and his writings were the immediate source whence Justin and the Fathers derived their doctrine of the Logos. Fortunately, these writings, the bulk of them at least, have been preserved, and from them we may gather the sentiments of the Alexandrian Platonists of his time. He admits that there is one supreme God, but supposes that there is a second God inferior to him and begotten of him called his reason, Logos, the term, as we have seen, employed by Plato to designate his second principle. To this Logos, or intelligent nature, emanating from God as he considers it, he attributes all the properties of a real being and calls him God's firstborn Logos, the most ancient angel, as it were an archangel with many names. To this archangel, the most ancient Logos, the Father Omnipotent, he says, granted the preeminent gift to stand on the confines of both and separate the created from the Creator. He is continually a suppliant to the immortal God on behalf of the mortal race, which is exposed to affliction and misery, and is also the ambassador sent by the ruler of all to the subject race. Being neither unbegotten as God nor begotten as man, but occupying a middle place between the extremes, being a hostage to both. He applies the title God to him, not using the term, he's careful to say, in the highest sense. When used without the article, as here, he says, referring to the passage in Genesis on which he is commenting, it can be understood only in its secondary sense, the article being prefixed when the supreme God is referred to. What is here called God, he says, is his most ancient Logos, and again, the reason of God, embracing, like Plato's Logos, the ideas or archetypes according to which the sensible world was framed. He calls God the fountain of the Logos, and the Logos his instrument or minister, informing, preserving, and governing the world, his messenger and interpreter of his will to man. In a fragment preserved by Eusebius, Philo remarks upon a passage in Genesis, chapter 9, verse 6, which reads, according to the Septuagint version, For in the image of God did I make man. This divine oracle, he says, is full of beauty and wisdom, for it was not possible that anything mortal should be formed after the image of the Most High, the Father of the universe. It could only be formed in the image of the second God, who is his Logos, or reason. It was necessary that the stamp of reason on the soul of man should be impressed by the divine Logos, for the God above, or before, the Logos is superior to every rational nature, and it was not lawful that anything begotten should be made like him who is above the Logos, and subsists in a form the most excellent and peculiar to himself. Thus, using the term Logos in the sense of reason, having a proper subsistence and distinct from God, Though emanating from the fountain of his divinity, Philo departed from the usage of the sacred writers, who, as we have seen, never attribute to it this meaning. The sum of the matter is, the authors of the Septuagint version and the Platonists employed the same term, logos, to express totally different views, the former intending by it simply a mode of action in the deity, the latter a real being, his agent and minister in executing his will. Philo was the first, we believe, who attributed to the Logos a permanent personal subsistence, thus proceeding one step beyond Plato, which was the more easy for him in consequence of his acquaintance with the principles of the Oriental philosophy. For, in the general influx and confusion of opinions at that time in Alexandria, 
These entered into a strange union with Grecian speculations and Judaism. The subject might be further explained by an appeal to later writers of the same school, as Plotinus and others, but it is unnecessary. Justin and the subsequent fathers we know read Philo, and their thoughts and expressions often exhibit a remarkable coincidence with his. Indeed, so deeply are their writings imbued with his sentiments and spirit that without them, as Mosheim observes, they would often be altogether unintelligible. No one who compares their sentiments in reference to the Logos with those entertained and expressed by him can doubt, we think, that they must have been derived from a common source. And this could be no other than the doctrines of Plato, as explained by his later followers of the Alexandrian school. Justin, as related in a former chapter, expressly informs us that he became acquainted with these doctrines before his conversion to Christianity and took incredible delight in them. The process by which he engrafted them on the original truths of the gospel without any premeditated design of corruption, which we do not impute to him, is not difficult to explain. End quote. And Lamson gives a caveat in the footnote that although Philo makes the Logos a second being who is subordinate to God, he's not wholly consistent in this, and that sometimes the Logos just seems to be an action of God or something like that. I think that's right. When we return, our conclusions. In sum, while Justin Martyr was not a great scholar, he was a great Christian. He literally died for his faith. Very much a product of his time and strongly influenced by his Gentile culture, he was nonetheless a monotheist, a believer in one God, the ultimate source of all else. He was a zealous debater and was concerned to make the Christian case from the Jewish Bible, although his arguments often fall short. Still, despite all his speculations, he never lost sight of the main point of apostolic Christianity. Here's a portion of his final plea to Trypho that ends the book. I beg of you to embrace the Christ of Almighty God in preference to your own teachers. You also may one day come to believe entirely, as we do, that Jesus is the Christ of God. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.